text and start from the top again uh, so that we can post this one later uh, to be a complete sermon. All right? So if I got it wrong the first time, we'll get it right the second time. Uh, we don't want to do the third time as a charm. All right. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshy mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which, are, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion and false humility and neglect of the body that are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So as uh, we look at this text and uh, take some time through it, I again mention the title is Don't Judge Me. And the proposition for this uh, really as we look at these verses that convey the idea of what was bringing the Colossian people into uh, question about their faith uh, are these secondary issues. And so uh, the proposition for you today as we look at this uh, text must be to keep our focus on Christ and our connection to him and not major on the minors or on the non-essentials or on secondary issues or uh, existential experiences. And so, uh, again, it's easy to get sidetracked. It's easy to make the Christian faith about lists of do's and don'ts to promote the idea that one attains spirituality by external activity and worship regulations. The idea being that, that if you keep a prescribed set of rules, you are on a higher spiritual plane. The te- this text is, is not a permission slip to live any way you please, But it is a clear and potent reminder to the Christian to keep Christ and your connection to him the focus of both your worship and your walk. So as we work through these verses, I believe you'll find three unfortunate reasons, or uh, if you'd like it spun a different way, three faulty motives that lead us away from grace. And so in the, the text, you'll find this first one the enslavement or the fear of man's opinion and approval. Verses 16 and 17, let no one judge you in food or drink or other uh, festivals, new moons and Sabbaths, uh, which are a shadow, it goes on to say. So first uh, is we can be robbed of the grace uh, that we find in Christ Jesus. We can uh, allow our attraction to Christ to be turned aside when we start to worry about peripheral issues. All right. So first, the fear of man and man's opinion. Secondly, the emphasis on superstition or feeling or experiences. 
in verse 18, it says, uh, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility, the worship of angels, intruding into those things he has not seen. goes on uh, there. But uh, the emphasis there is on some kind of spiritual experience, something that will give you the next step, if you would, in your spiritual life, and not, again, attached to the head. And then finally, um, the efficiency of religious regulations, lists, and rules. Um, sometimes we get distracted from um, our relationship with Christ because we get into a rut and a routine, or we like lists, and we um, like to follow those lists. And yet in this passage it's saying, um, don't replace that vital connection to Christ and the worship of Christ um, by other means. And so, uh, as mentioned above, this text is in direct connection with the warning uh, that began in verse 8, to beware lest you be cheated. And here it's really delving into the particular ways in which the Colossians were being influenced away from grace. A simple outline of these verses, if you're actually just outlining it, would be, first of all, the commands uh, in verses 16 through 19. Let no one judge you. Let no one cheat you. So you find the commands. And then secondly, uh, the question, uh, therefore, why, verses 20 and 22, why would you do this? Uh, since you're connected to Christ, why would you let go of that connection and look for something else? And then the conclusion, uh, verse 23, these things have an appearance of wisdom. They look like they work. They actually do work in some ways, but they detract from the grace of God, and the faith that you have in Christ Jesus. And so, uh, as we take time to open this up, and as we look at these verses, um, there are some uh, technical parts of the language that could bog us down and, and cause us to uh, get into all kinds of discussions. And I'd love for that sometime, uh, to have you all back here, and we can just talk about some of what the implications of this uh, really take place. And so while we could spend a great deal of time trying to explore the technical aspects and the implications of the language, I'll forego that uh, so that we don't get uh, lost in the details, kind of what's going on in the text, right? And so uh, I will offer here one thought that as to why um, some of the text seems uh, difficult to understand, if you would. The difficulty, I think, lies in the original intent, uh, the Holy Spirit-inspired word, um, as the Apostle is writing, I think the tone of this text is uh, hyperbole. It's exaggeration, if you would. I think by inspiration, there is some sarcasm that's used in this to drive home the point uh, that the Apostle is trying to get the Colossian believers. And so, uh, let me show that to you really quickly. Verse 17, uh, he uses this analogy of the shadow and the body. Um, literally, has the idea of, of why are you chasing after someone's shadow when they're right there? Uh, that is Christ. Um, or in verse 18, when he talks about it being a display of false humility. Well, what's false humility? Pride, right? <laughs> Why wouldn't you just say, which is a display of pride, instead of outright 
um, name calling or uh, suggesting the problem. He's, he uses these kind of language. Uh, third, uh, you see this in verse 18, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshy mind. There's a little bit of sarcasm, I think, found in that verse. Or in verse 23, these have an appearance of wisdom, which means what? <laughs> They're not wise at all, actually quite foolish. And then uh, you find this self-imposed religion. That is, this isn't from God. Uh, this isn't uh, from His Word. It's actually uh, self-imposed. It's created. It's man's authority. And that's where you find the answer. So, so as mentioned previously, this, this makes somewhat... Uh, uh, this text is, is a little more difficult to translate. And sometimes even in, as you read through it in the English, uh, it's hard to understand that because um, ultimately, I guess, you know, when people use sarcasm, it doesn't translate very well. You probably have had similar experiences uh, when you're emailing someone or you're texting someone and you suggest something and you're purposely meaning it to be sarcastic, and you don't attach uh, a little emotion uh, or emoji with it, and they have no idea what you mean, what are you trying to say, all right? So this is a part of communication uh, that makes the written word a little more difficult. But I'm sure uh, that, that we've all been around people or we know someone who, even when you're in their presence, they have that dry sense of humor uh, and you don't know if they're really being serious or if they're joking. You wonder, uh, you know, were they just making a joke or were they serious? Uh, which explains, I think, some of the difficulty of this passage. But I hope that makes it a little more clear. And as we work through it, I think it'll be helpful. As you read through the gospel accounts uh, and, and you come across the miracles of Jesus and the people's response to those miracles you may at times be amazed at their reactions. For instance, uh, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Jewish leaders met and they spoke not only of putting Jesus to death, but also of putting Lazarus to death because many people had believed on Jesus because of the miracle. Rather than believing, they simply wanted to do away with the evidence. As much as we think a miracle would convince people we actually find that that's not the case. And if you would read John's Gospel and you work through John's Gospel, you'll find that the emphasis of John's Gospel is that God's Word is to be believed. And it's more important of an, more an important authority than miracles or signs or anything else. And so uh, faith, if you would, is greater than sight. There are other times when Jesus healed people and the individuals or their families either turned on Jesus or declined to comment because of fear of the Jews. I was recently read through the Gospel of John. And uh, as you read through that Gospel, you find a lot of different instances, but two that came to my mind as I was preparing here. The two cases, first, uh, the healing of the lame man who was by the pool of Siloam. Uh, who Jesus told to take up his bed and walk. You might remember that account. After being healed, 
Uh, he took up his bed. He walked. He had been there for a long time, waiting for a stirring of the waters. Jesus heals him. And as he's walking, the Pharisees and scribes ask him why he's carrying his bed on the Sabbath. And, uh, of course, he says, well, the person who healed me, I was lame, I'm now healed. The person who healed me told me to take my bed and walk. When they inquired further as to who this person was, he didn't immediately know. Jesus kind of uh, melted away into the crowds at that time. And so uh, later, however, when he came across Jesus, um, he actually went back to the authorities and reported Jesus. Right? That's the man. He's the one who did it. Rather than being, if you would, uh, showing gratitude towards the Lord Jesus or affection, knowing that he had been healed, he responds seemingly in fear of being ostracized in public. The second account in the same gospel, in chapter 9, uh, the, was the healing of the man who was born blind. In that account, um, he was questioned by the Jewish leaders many times uh, of this whole account and what Jesus did and how he was healed. And included in their interrogation, they called the man's parents in to testify. His parents affirmed that, indeed, he was their son, and that, that indeed, he had been born blind. But that did, they didn't know how, and they didn't know who. The text then says that his parents told the religious leaders, he, their son, is of age. And so they, the Pharisees, should ask him. They said this because they feared the consequences of attesting to Christ or the work of Christ. And so the exchange is found in John chapter 9, verses 20 through 23. It says his parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but what? But by what means he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things, the text goes on to say, um, because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Fear is a powerful motivator, isn't it? And I suppose... Going through the present virus threat, this lesson may be even more clearly understood by us than ever before. Probably all of us have allowed fear to affect us in some way or another. Whether it is uh, the fear of the actual virus, or the fear of what people think when you go out in public, or the fear of an omnipresent surveillance system through electronic devices, or even the fear of being uh, reported by an onlooker or a neighbor of doing something um, not following social distance protocol. Has fear play, played a role in your response to all of this? Are you living in fear? It is amazing how quickly our freedoms are given up or exchanged for safety, security, and quite possibly out of fear. Please don't misunderstand this. I am not saying our responses thus far are unwarranted. I am simply saying we must not live and operate out of fear. We have all probably had a sense of fear through this present situation, 
that we may not have ever felt before. I know I have. Um, you know, uh, when, you're, you're, when you're doing things that uh, are somehow violating the protocol that's being told you, do you have this um, kind of haunting sense of, is somebody watching or will they report me? In my opinion, the worst kind of fear is what we find in this text. It's the fear that can be brought on by false religious teaching because it has eternal consequences. It is the fear that is used by religious instructors to enslave people or improperly motivate them. This fear is seen in our text and is the first of three faulty motivations that draw us away from the freedom that we have and the grace that we have in Christ Jesus. And so we're going to look at that first motivation, the enslavement of fear of man's opinion and approval found in verses 16 and 17. As we see here, the apostle is advocating for the believers not to be taken hostage by the thoughts and opinions of others. Look at verse, uh, if you would, verse 16 and 17. It says, uh, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. Uh, so specifically, it would seem that they were being led to believe that they were missing something or they were in need to do something or, or to do something different instead of what they were doing. So rather than peace and rest, uh, they were fretting. And they were fretting because of non-essentials, if you would, secondary issues. And so as we look at these verses, we'll see three parts to this lesson. First, the imperative, the command, if you would. Second, the instruments that these false teachers were using. And then finally, the assessment, um, which assesses uh, or evaluates what's going on. So the first part of this lesson, the imperative, if you would, let no one judge you. This really is kind of an impossible command, isn't it? Do you ever think about that? Let no one judge you. Well, how do you stop someone? From judging you, how is that even possible? Um, we, you can't prevent people from being critical or from analyzing you or from being judgmental as they watch your lives. And so now, uh, I think we use these kind of imperatives a little more frequently recently uh, than maybe other times. <laughs> They're kind of a pet peeve for me. For instance, when you tell people, "Have a nice day," is that like a command? Have a nice day, right? Well, how do I go about doing that? Um, you know, how, how do, for instance, when they say that, um, what if I don't want to have a nice day? <laughs> what, or how do I go about pursuing having a nice day? What if everything happens to me that prevents me from having a nice day? Or maybe the new one you probably heard frequently uh, already in this new COVID virus era. Be safe. How do you do that? <laughs> How do you be safe? Uh, you have no idea of this invisible threat that's lurking. Um, be safe. What does that mean? How am I supposed to ensure that I can do that? Uh, now, we all know what this means, right? You, you understand that people aren't, like, commanding you. They're wishing you well. They're um, encouraging you. They might... Uh, okay, 
what I try to do, and maybe you should think of this too, is say, I hope you have a nice day. Or, I hope you, you are safe. Or, I hope for your safety. Something like that. Um, but, okay, that's a little pet peeve of mine. I'll, I'll move on. Uh, here's, here's the text. Uh, as you look at this text, the apostle is urging the believers not to be controlled by, not to be held captive by the, the opinions and the criticisms and the judgments of others. The Greek word translated judge, krino, means to condemn or to censure or to rule over or to govern or to preside over. So the point is that we must always be careful not to be held hostage by the criticisms and opinions of others. This does not mean that we uh, that it cannot be helped um, or that we avoid the counsel of others or that we uh, don't care about other people's think. but ultimately there is only one opinion that should matter, and that's the opinion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean we outright disregard what people think. Uh, the scriptures would be clear about this, for instance, in the text that was read uh, this morning. Uh, if my brother's conscience is weak, I should be sensitive to that. And in love, I should um, maybe censure myself because of my brother's conscience. These are aspects that are true in the scriptures. And so the imperative uh, that you find in this text is that we need to enjoy the peace and the rest that is ours in Christ Jesus, and not fall prey to those who, uh, who would make them think they're missing the mark or make them think that they have walked away from the truth. Keep Christ central in the midst of this. And so you find, first of all, the command. Secondly, the instruments that were used. It says, don't let someone judge you. Then it says, in food or in drink or regarding the festival or a new moon, or Sabbaths. And so what is mentioned here in part are the devices that were being employed by the false teachers, um, which predominantly have Jewish overtones. Most importantly here is that these prohibitions were all about the externals. Uh, they were non-essentials. They were secondary issues that were being heightened to being the main thing, or to bring the focus to that. There are a lot of reasons, but we can save the discussion for later on because when we come to that in the third point in a couple of weeks, uh, we'll, we'll delve into that a little bit more. But here, we can see that the list included dietary codes, special occasions, specific days, and I suppose you could add um, a few of our own that we might uh, have experienced, like clothing or music to the list, Right? These are the instruments people use as a way to make you feel inferior or conversely to make themselves look superior. They are, they are used to make you feel that something is missing in your life spiritually. Whether it's religious systems or movements, um, they are used to control the adherence. That's what's going on in the, in the Colossian church. These who are coming in from the outside were trying to submit or suggest that they were missing something, and in so doing, were getting them to look at the miners to move away from Christ. And so here it included all of these things, dietary codes, 
special occasions, specific days. Now, we'll deal with the significance of these instruments in a little bit, but to clear up this point, I'll elaborate a little bit on the nature of the various devices. And you find two different categories in this text. One, dietary regulations in food or drink, and the other one in observances or religious observances. So uh, the dietary regulations here, um, we, we understand the kosher Jewish dietary codes to be primarily in view. Some have taken this to go beyond Jewish law, saying that, that they had no regulation for drink. This view, I think, uh, is inaccurate. Uh, there were regulations for priests, for Nazarites, and others who took vows um, as a part of Jewish law. Nonetheless, the point here is that the false teachers were implying that by strict observance of dietary code, one could have a closer walk with God. Okay? To this you might remember the words of the Lord Jesus to the Pharisees. Mark 7 and verse 15 says, There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. You remember probably the account where Peter was in the upper room of Simon the Tanner and was... Uh, saw a vision and unclean things were came down from the sky. The vision was preparing him to go to Cornelius and there to evangelize and share the gospel. But in that text, Peter said, uh, after being encouraged to rise up and eat, Peter wrote, I can't. I can't touch anything unclean. To which the voice said, don't call unclean what I have called clean. And on we find, in, as you move on into the New Testament, in the book of Galatians, where some from Judah had come up and were troubling the believers. And even Peter was caught up in that controversy about circumcision and dietary codes. And uh, as a result was rebuked. All of this was going on. So the early church was constantly embattled with these types of issues. So it should be of no surprise to us that the church at Colossae would have opponents who assailed them along these lines as well. And he thought that you can be closer to God because you eat a certain way must be disregarded. Uh, by, the, by the way, even radical environmentalists have a certain dietary protocol, don't they? Uh, right? So it isn't just found in the religious world, but it's in the secular world as well. The other area uh, that concerned them were calendar observ observances, you know, festivals, noon, moons, Sabbaths. All of these were a part of this. There are many high and holy days celebrated in the Old Testament economy. And for that matter, in pagan religions as well. And so as New Testament believers we realize that every day is the same. Every day is the Lord's day. This uh, we find here. Last week, uh, we were missed out on being able to celebrate um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, together as a church body. Uh, we would have loved to have been able to do that. I know that all of us long for that time to be together. Um, but, um, frankly, we can celebrate the resurrection anytime, can't we? Uh, the resurrection is something we should celebrate every day. And for that matter, uh, I'm minded, as your pastor, uh, to 
have a Easter Sunday when we get back together and maybe go through all of the things that we would normally do. Get the uh, music out and sing about the resurrection of Jesus and celebrate it together. Uh, that's my desire. Uh, we'll see if that actually happens uh, in time to come. But the point here is that these false teachers were trying to bring people into bondage, somehow suggesting that they were doing things wrong, that they um, were not following after Christ, or that they, there were other things that should draw their attention away. This brings us to the final point, and that is the third part of this lesson, the assessment. Um, these are, Paul says, a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. This language, uh, being part of the hyperbole mentioned before, is meant to help the believers to see the exchange that they are ultimately making. Uh, that they are following, uh, when following the false teachers, uh, they are literally exchanging the real person for a shadow. Um, the substance, actually the word translated from the Greek substance, the Greek word is soma or body. So you're, you're literally uh, exchanging the literal body, um, the body of believers for a shadow. Meaning they would be going after the appearance of the real rather than the real. It's a great reminder as you look at this assessment of how quickly we can be turned aside how quickly we can um, go after peripheral things. How quickly we can make following Christ about lists of do's and don'ts. How quickly we um, think that holiness is self-produced. And it doesn't mean that we aren't a part of it. Again, as I mentioned earlier, this is not a, a permission slip for license by the Apostle Paul. It is specifically addressing Paul's teaching that was taking their eyes off of Christ and putting it on regulations and lists. And so for us, we must follow Christ radically. It's not an appeal for license. Um, it is not the idea of casting off all moral guides or scruples. It is just to put them in their place. Secondary issues are to be that. Secondary. And so as we as we close this time in the Word this morning, uh, let me encourage you, um, don't um, get sidetracked. Don't keep Christ central. Um, keep following Him. Don't allow all of the peripheral issues to, uh, to drag you away from what was finished on the cross of Calvary almost 2,000 years ago. The finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ for your redemption. It has been complete, and we can rejoice in his finished work. I'm going to uh, hand over now to our final hymn. I encourage you to find your words to the hymn as we sing, May the Mind of Christ our Savior, as we close this morning. So, Brother John.